The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast paced. It's like a good two minute drill. We are just boom, 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 right down the field. Opinionated. If they take the David Price savings and the Mookie Betts savings and pocket the money, it will have been a lie and the fan base will be furious. To the point. Cam is not that guy. He's not the kind of athlete that works in today's NFL for the most part. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas here. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. So we've done the show for eight full days now. I had to change the intro. I had to get rid of the part where I say Cam's the only answer for them at quarterback. They must extend him. So eight days in, we have changed the intro. I, I couldn't live with myself hearing that every single day now because I just sound more and more like an idiot. So, again, it is the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. You guys continue to crush it. We continue to gain new listeners, continue to hear positive feedback, both with the, the company itself and with this show, and I am incredibly appreciative of that. I am extremely grateful and humbled for the opportunity to be here. I was thinking about it yesterday. As all the, the, the noise around the world is, I just was thinking, I'm really happy right now professionally. I'm really happy to be here, to talk with you, to meet new listeners, to have new coworkers, and to get a chance to do what I love to do, which is talk sports every single night for an hour and a half. So a lot of bad things are happening to a lot of bad people, or a lot of bad things are happening to a lot of good people as a result of the coronavirus and a lot of people um, in a tough spot. And I was in a tough spot you know, during the last couple of months because of the coronavirus as well. But I'm grateful to be here with you and that uh, we continue to build this thing together. UVM men's basketball coach John Becker is going to join us at 545. If you want to interact with the show, you can. You can reach out to me at WDEV Radio Brady on Twitter. That's at WDEV Radio Brady. Show is always brought to you by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of lifetime oil changes and state inspections. Preston's Kia, family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. Let's start here. So the report came out today that the Red Sox may have a new manager by the end of tonight. And if it's not tonight, it could be tomorrow. John Heyman, MLB Network, said that. I thought coming in on Monday, I thought we were going to have a clear answer that this was going to be Alex Cora. I thought it was going to be so clearly headed that way. And Cora's in the final two, according to Heyman. But Sam Fold, who used to play for the Tampa Bay Rays, so he goes back with Hyam Bloom. He is firmly in the mix. People absolutely think that he is a real and legitimate candidate here. Lou Merloni, former Red Sox infielder, current Boston radio host, he's kind of trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. And I think now it's like now that we're getting farther away from it, it's this is one of the easiest hires in the world if Hein Bloom wants him. You don't even have to have a face to face. I mean this no, you this know is who just he is. Yeah, I mean, listen, no, if I'm Bloom, I probably still want to face-to-face. I, I still yeah. want to meet with him because I, I never had you. I want to hear the things I want to hear. I still want to know, you know, your thoughts and ideas and if they mesh with me. But Alex well, Alex wants the job. This is the easiest hire in the world. If Bloom okay, good, we're done here. The further we get away, I don't think Bloom wants him. I'm wondering the same thing, and I'm trying to figure out why. I'm wondering what the delay is, what the hesitation is. Why is Alex Cora not already hired to be the next manager of the Boston Red Sox? There, there's a couple of possibilities, and I don't know exactly what the reason is. Does Bloom simply think Alex Cora is not a good manager? Right? That, that is possible. 
Red Sox won a World Series with Alex Cora, but does Hyam Bloom think he was just a product of an overinflated payroll and he can't win without the big talent? We don't know what Chris Sale's going to be. David Price isn't here. Mookie Betts isn't here. Andrew Benatendi is now a shell of himself. So Craig Kimbrell's gone. So does Hyam Bloom just think that Alex Cora simply is not good enough to restore the Red Sox to a contender? That That is possible. I don't know that that's true, but that is possible. This one, I think, is more likely. Everybody in the organization seems to want Alex Cora. Management seems to want Alex Cora. Sam Kennedy, John Henry love Alex Cora. The players seem to want Alex Cora. Christian Vasquez was on a podcast a couple weeks ago and said he wanted Alex Cora back. Rafael Devers is known to love Alex Cora. So if the players love him and some of his old coaching staff is still intact, they love him. And if ownership loves him, does Hyam Bloom fear that Alex Cora would have so much power in the organization that he would be powerless? I really do wonder that. And it's a legitimate wonder because Hyam Bloom was brought in to do a job, and it's a tough job. He was brought in to what I believe is play the long game with the Red Sox or the long-ish game with the Red Sox. If Alex Cora doesn't want to play the long game, or the long-ish game with the Red Sox. He simply goes over Heim Bloom's head, and everybody in the organization is on his side. They're not on Heim Bloom's side. In fact, if Heim Bloom dissents against Alex Cora, then he becomes the problem in the organization. Does Heim Bloom fear that he won't have the say if Alex Cora is there? It's a ver- that is a very think about any power struggle in any office across America. Think about your own business. You're driving in your car. You're listening on your smart speaker. Think about it. When everybody in the organization loves person A, and your person B, who's trying to get person A to think like you do, if I'm Cora, if I'm person A, I'm like, no way. I don't agree with you. I'm not bowing down to you. Thank you for the job back, but... I'm going to go to that guy, that guy, and that guy who loves me. And, oh, by the way, the players, they love me too. I'm going to win that battle. And I don't know that Bloom wants to fight that battle. So that, for as we think about what's the holdup, that could very possibly be the holdup there. You know, and also the, the Sam Fold thing is interesting. Sam Fold, kind of a light-hitting, speed, defensive outfielder in his day. Played with the Rays has been working for the Phillies the last couple of years, has never managed at any level, not in the minors, not in the majors. He's never even been an on-field coach at the major league level. So now you start thinking, okay, what are the reasons? Why? So you have a, a, a world championship winning manager sitting over here in Alex Cora who wants the job. And you have Sam Fold, who was not a great player, which is not a prerequisite, but was not a great player. And has never been a coach before at the professional level. Why is Sam Fold still in the conversation? I think there's two possible reasons to this. Simply put, there's just relationships, right? It's just you go no further than that. It's just as innocent as that. Sam Fold played for the Rays, has been around the Rays. High and Bloom was around the Rays for a long time. He knows Fold. He likes Fold. He saw Fold firsthand, and he thinks Fold can do the job. That's a real possibility. It's just an in, in, in innocence to it like that. 
But what if it's this? As you look, as you dig a little deeper, what if Sam Fold, or what if Bloom perceives that Sam Fold is so grateful to be a first-time manager that he would put up with losing, he would play the long game, and he will let Bloom do what he wants. You know, you're always a little bit more indebted to the guy who gave you the job. Alex Cora would have a degree of gratitude to Hyam Bloom, but he's really indebted to ownership and the players that back him. Sam Fold doesn't know the players, doesn't have a relationship with ownership. He'd be indebted to Heim Bloom. Heim Bloom gets his way in a battle with Sam Fold. Think about that. This decision will be fascinating because it could all come down to a potential power struggle. Can Heim Bloom think, or does he think, does he fear that Alex Cora would have the say in the organization over him? And does he think and hope that he would get his way in battles with Sam Fold? It's very possible that all of those things that I just outlined are true. One thing is also clear to me, by the way, that, again, the players want Cora, ownership wants Cora. If Bloom goes against that, they will let him hire his guy. They will let him hire Fold. But if it doesn't go well, or if it doesn't go well early, Hyam Bloom is squarely in the crosshairs. Because if he passes up on Alex Cora, it's a, this is such a fascinating dynamic. If he passes up on Cora and brings in Fold and the team isn't as good, he's out. Right? He's out. Because ownership says there was a World Series winner who our city loves, who our players loved, and who we loved. There was a guy sitting there who had won a championship. You brought in your guy, and here we are, one year of 70 and 92. You're gone. You cost yourself a GM's job. Or he can do the safe hire. The safe hire is hire Cora. He probably extends his own personal leash if he hires Cora. But will he get to do what he wants? Will He'll have the job in title, but will he have the say? What makes you happy? Because if Cora gets hired, he's got a, lo- a, a lot more job security. But he doesn't get to do the job the way he wants. If he hires Fold... He gets to do the job the way he wants, but the pressure is solely on him. Red Sox reportedly down to two candidates with a third potentially lurking, depending on who you listen to. I think uh, Kelly, the bench coach over in uh, in Pittsburgh. But really, it looks like Fold and Cora are the guys. Could have a manager by tomorrow's show. It's the Brady Farkas Show on uh, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We do this every Thursday. I use Lucy, the beloved Peanuts character, to help me kick it off. It's Tell the Truth Thursday. Now we're really going to get down to business. This is exactly what I was worried about with Golden Tate and the New York Giants. Okay, if you don't know this story, Golden Tate was not allowed to come to practice yesterday. Golden Tate is being disciplined today at practice by being... You know, he's the highest or the second highest paid receiver on the team, one of the highest players on the team, highest paid players on the team. Today he's running with the stout with the scout team at practice. Joe Judge is trying to send a message to a veteran receiver who's played, you know, a decade ish in the NFL. Golden Tate on Monday showed up his team. 
showed up Joe Judge, screamed, throw me the ball. Just all kinds of histrionics about how he wasn't getting the football on Monday night against the Bucks. His wife tweeting the Giants saying that they're not using her husband in the right way. He, he's liking things on Twitter about how the Giants should cut him. Golden Tate has become a problem. Joe Judge, the new head coach, is trying to build a culture. That's hard to do in the NFL, especially when you're losing, and the Giants are 1-7. and seven. But what Judge has on his side, the Giants are a young team, pretty impressionable as a result of that. There are guys that are used to a college life and a college structure still where a coach can be controlling, where a coach has the ultimate power. They got buy-in from important guys like Daniel Jones, the quarterback, Saquon Barkley, the running back, and their overall best player. Those guys bought in. They're young players too. So we have a young, impressionable team that Joe Judge is trying to mold. And there's one disgruntled veteran that's there to try to tear it all down. This was my biggest fear. I like everything that Joe Judge stands for. I like everything that Joe Judge said at his introductory press conference when he got hired you know, nine months ago. The guy on the roster who isn't buying in is Golden Tate. He's look, Golden Tate's been through losing. He played in Detroit a bunch of years, went to Philly, got traded there, didn't win. He's been through a bunch of losing seasons in his career. He doesn't want to be 1-7, and seven, and he certainly doesn't want to be a part of a culture build or Joe Judge's strict, rigorous program and be 1-7. and seven. That's not going to fly with him. Golden Tate won a Super Bowl early in his career in Seattle. He has seen the best. He has seen the NFL at its peak. He has seen that life. He's held that Lombardi trophy. He's never going to be okay. He was never going to be okay with hard practice, rigorous structure, and we don't get results. And now he's become a problem. This was the one thing that I feared when when Joe Judge got hired. This was the thing. That Golden Tate wasn't going to buy in and that he was going to become a problem at some point. And he has become a problem now. Sent home from practice. Told not to come to practice even. Today put on the scout team as a 10-year veteran of the NFL, as a guy who's got a 40-plus million dollar contract. That was my biggest worry. That Golden Tate wasn't going to be satisfied and that he was going to tear the whole thing down. And here he is trying to tear the whole thing down. And Joe Judge, good for him because he is sticking to his beliefs and he is sticking to his core principles. And he is not letting Golden Tate get away with this. And it's pretty interesting to contrast a guy like Logan Ryan, who's a longtime veteran, who speaks so glowingly of Joe Judge. He's the veteran who is buying it. He's the veteran who is um, singing Joe Judge's praise and is sending that message down the line from veteran to young players. He played for Bill Belichick. He knows what it's like. Golden Tate has been on a bunch of losers for a long time. And as a result, he's become a problem. And this was the most predictable thing about the New York Giants, that if they were losing, that Golden Tate was going to be disgruntled. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. And we come back, John Becker, UVM men's basketball coach, a different season on tap ahead for the Catamounts. What's it all going to look like? John Becker, the man on the sidelines, is going to join us next right here on WDEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. And 
2020 has been a slog in so many ways. And finally, some good sports news has started to come on the local front within the last couple of weeks. And one of those things is we're hearing bits and pieces of the UVM men's basketball schedule. And joining us now is UVM basketball coach John Becker. Nine 20-win seasons at the helm of the Catamounts. Coach, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, I appreciate you joining us. We know the conference format. We now know the official conference schedule. We've heard about a non-conference matchup with Siena. You're going to be playing in Bubbleville. Was there ever a point where you doubted we would get to this point, though? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I still think things are very fluid. I mean, um, you know, Corona is uh, – the virus is really dictating um, – what we're going to be able to do is so as of now we feel really good the league's uh, you know the league office has done a great job uh of getting uh, our league schedule together in, in a manner that seems to make sense and and seems doable and um um you know we'll have a couple non-conference opportunities right now but but um i'm hoping things um you know as far as the covid goes start to trend better than it is right now so we'll we'll um we'll have to stay patient here and hope hope for the best and and um but but um but yeah it didn't it's been very touch and go and and i'm glad we're right now at a, a point where there's optimism and um something to work towards logistically what has it looked like for you guys since practice start started i mean i've seen teams in the league wearing masks as they practice smaller workouts what has it looked like for you yeah i mean we've uh you know our kids have been on campus since uh late july um you know and we've uh we had some some positive tests over the summer that caused us to, to go into quarantine and isolation and um you know and, and so uh once uh september hit you know we started to work through the the phasing approach that the ncaa recommended um and uh which was really just um uh, for a long time, just individual work guys at a basket uh, by themselves, basically doing skill work. Um, and then about a month ago, we, we progressed to phase three where we're allowed to play five on five. Um, so I just let the guys play pickup for a couple weeks for the two weeks leading up uh, to, to the official start of practice, which was October 14th. And, and um you know, just because it's been five, six months since they've just played, and and the guys are making a lot of sacrifices and doing a great job of, of um, you know, adhering to the the protocols, and um, you know, and, and so uh, we just want to let them get out there and, and get up and down a little bit and have some fun, and and, and as we moved into practice, um, you know, that's been, you know. Um, we wear masks for part of practice and not for other parts of practice. And so, um, again, our guys have done a really good job and, and, um, um, but it's, it's very, very different. And, um, you know, our, our student athletes, um, are being asked a lot, uh, as far as, um, um, you know, uh, sticking to a lot of, uh, very precise protocols and procedures. And they've done a great job with that. One of the big tenets of your program's success has been your guys' team chemistry. You've always had that. And it's going to be really important this year for you guys as Anthony Lamb graduates and you graduate some other key pieces that were upperclassmen. You also bring in a bunch of new transfers. Has the way the offseason has gone and the restrictions in place, has it impacted your ability to hold gatherings or, or just get your team more acclimated with each other? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our guys, we're fortunate that a, the majority of our guys live together. Um, and so they've been able to, um, you know, create chemistry and, and, you know, the new leadership group with, with the graduation of Anthony and Everett last year. Um, you know, so all of that stuff that's really important. And, and summer is really a big time for that team building and, and, um, and, and things like that that we really didn't have this year. And so that's definitely been a challenge. You know, it, we're not really uh, in the office much. We maybe go in an hour before practice and, and the coaches leave right after. So there has – it's been harder um, – certainly um to to build that team chemistry and uh you're right that's been a big part of our success and our guys in the house have done a good job um but it's certainly been a challenge and um you know the time we do have together we have to try to maximize not only for um training purposes but also um chemistry building and trust and 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 all those type of things that are really important john becker uvm men's basketball coach with us here on the brady farkas show wdev am and fm and wdev radio.com um when we look at this at this team it's going to be missing a central figure from the last four years in anthony lamb we're all hopeful he's going to get drafted in the upcoming nba draft have you heard anything right now about how he's being uh, viewed by teams from the professional level um, you know, I know he's uh, he's been down in Atlanta training for the last three months. He's making his way back to Rochester um, to kind of uh, wait for the draft. Um, he's done a lot of Zoom interviews with teams. He's done second and third interviews with some teams. Um, you know, but he's um, you know he's right right in that mix for a late second round pick or or a, a certainly a free agent signing, and so. Um, you know, it's just going to be, um, you know, we'll have to see. But he's got no guarantees. And, and um, you know, I think even if he ends up being a free agent signing in some ways, that's, um, you know, even better than getting drafted, even though we want to certainly get him drafted and be the first Vermont player to, 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 to say that, that they've been able to do that. But, um, you know, if he's a free agent signing, he'll have him and his agent will have much more um, control or have complete control about where he signs um, and making sure it's a right fit as far as the, the style of play and need and stuff like that. So um, he's been working really hard. I've done a bunch of Zoom calls with him. He looks great. Um, he feels really confident. Um, he's really excited about how he's playing and and um, and, and kind of the uh, um, you know the work he's done with with uh, the people down there. And so um, he's in a great place. And and um, you know that's going to be really exciting on draft night. And and um, you know hopefully uh, his number gets gets called. But but either way, he's going to be in a good place. The edict came out a couple of weeks ago, and no fans for the foreseeable future at your home games. How much are you going to miss your fans at Patrick Jim? Oh, I mean, it's it's a big deal. It's a really big deal, you know, for especially for us in our league. You know, I think we have um, the best home court advantage. Um, we have just a, a you know a, a loyal fan base and um, a great fan base, and you know, familiar faces and very you know homey. You know, it just feels you know I, I look forward every year to to 
to seeing um, seeing the people you see every year, um, and um, and certainly from a competitive standpoint, it gives us a huge advantage at home. And so, um, you know, we'll miss that for sure. And um, we're going to have to figure out some way to create an atmosphere um, in all the gyms we play, and, and obviously the NBA, Major League Baseball, and NFL have piped in this crowd noise and i think we're gonna have to figure out a way to do that and a way that's um you know classy and respectable but also um can um can create a little bit of uh uh texture to the game and and depth to the game and and um so hopefully we'll be able to do that but yeah we're gonna really miss our fans the political administration here in vermont has been um very, very clear about what the travel rule guidance is and, and testing and all that. And you guys are going to be able to play because with the Division One funds, you'll be able to do the requisite testing needed to leave the state without quarantine and come back, et cetera. But are you and the other coaches in the league on conference calls talking about, you know, just how to keep the league buying into the same philosophies? Because if, if one thing happens, the whole league could go down the tubes. Yeah. Oh, no. We have a weekly call with all the Americas head coaches and a representative from the league. And, you know, things, like I said, are very fluid and changing daily. And so um, we're just trying to yeah, communicate what's going on in each of our campuses and each of our states, um, what kind of support uh, each school state is getting from their governor's office and um yeah so that's um like i said this is this is all a very fluid situation and so um um we have something right now and we're hopeful that it stays in place but um you know covid's really in charge here and and we have to uh um we have to hopefully you know as a society we can um practice better discipline and um you know just wear our masks and socially distance and do some pretty simple things um to help um keep this virus down so that we're able uh you know as a society to do a lot of things but but for us specifically be able to travel among states and uh play basketball games in a safe environment for student athletes which is really um the most important thing Coach, I'll get you out of here on this switching gears. We heard the guidance yesterday that came out from the state of Vermont about high school basketball. Players are going to have to wear masks and fans aren't going to be allowed at games. And that's really, really tough on parents. You've been around high school kids for a long time. You've had high school kids who are athletes on your own. As a parent, put on your parent hat. How do you support your student athlete when you can't be at the game? Yeah, I mean, for some kids, it might be a good thing, quite honestly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you just have to, you know, um, you just have to do the best you can. And, and certainly, um, I don't know if streaming services are going to be available where uh, parents can watch a game and support their kids. But, um, you know, as parents, we got to do the best we can to uh, try not to live through our kids, um, let them have their own experience. This is a very unique time and, and very challenging. And I think it's really important that student, uh, that kids have an outlet. Um, and, and sports is, is a great one, um, not only for their health and well-being, but just uh, for competitive reasons and for, for, for feeling a part of something. And, um, you know, uh you know, if I, if my kids were still in school playing, um, I would just uh, support them before they they leave the house, and when they come home, uh, give them a hug and and, and hear what, what what went down, and and um, and try to keep them positive and, and motivated um, to uh, to continue to get better and, and do what they can to help their uh, teams be successful. 
John Becker, UVM men's basketball coach, Catamounts. We know the league season. We know some of the non-conference. We look forward to watching Catamount basketball, even though it will be from afar, uh, at least for a little while this season. So, Coach Becker, we appreciate it. Good luck with opening day here in a couple of weeks. We'll be following along. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me on, and and, and good luck with your new uh, venture here. I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be listening. Well, I appreciate that. There he goes, John Becker. UVM men's basketball coach, Catamount season, eligible to start November 25th. It is not set in stone just yet. We do know the team is going to play in Bubbleville at the end of the month in early December. We'll have three games in three days against some pretty good programs including Iona and St. Bonaventure. We They are going to play Siena. I believe that game December 6th in the conference season begins right before Christmas. They're going to have a matchup uh, one, one conference series right before Christmas. So what we'll do, we'll take a break. The staff will cut up my biggest takeaways. We'll get into what my biggest takeaways were on that interview with John Becker. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show every single weeknight, 537, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back. It is the Brady Farkas Show right here on Thursday, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. John Becker just joined us. If you missed any of Coach Becker's interview, UVM basketball coach, you can find it after the show. Remember, you can find our podcast, both the full show and just our big interview for the day. And sometimes there are some extra interviews in there that uh, that I throw in that don't get on the show when we play part of or when we play a clip of. But um, subscribe to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, or just WDEVradio.com. And uh, that response has been overwhelmingly good. So you guys have been awesome. Eric, um, one of the guys who listens to the show, he messaged me earlier and said that having the show on Spotify is great. He goes back and listens to it the next day and hears some things that he missed. So listening live is always number one, but uh, getting the podcast after is uh, really, really important as well. So appreciate all of you. John Becker, a great interview with us. Season can start November 25th. That's when the first games will be played. And I had three main takeaways from that interview, and the staff has cut that up as they always do. So first off, John Becker lamented, I guess, eh, not, not so much lamented. He confirmed that building team chemistry has been a challenge during this COVID-impacted summer and now academic year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our guys, we're fortunate that uh, the majority of our guys live together. Um, and so they've been able to, um, you know, create chemistry and and you know the new leadership group with with the graduation of anthony and everett last year um you know so all of that stuff that's really important and and summer is really a big time for that team building and and um and, and things like that that we really didn't have this year and so that's definitely been a challenge you know team chemistry is a hugely underrated part of sports in general it's something that analytics and data can't quantify and i like analytics i like data i like trends i like knowing things i like figures statistics team chemistry is one of the few things that data and analysis can account for just how much your team likes each other how much they want to play with and for each other and then just on field chemistry on court chemistry you know you hear about a quarterback and receiver building chemistry. It's not just that they need to like each other. They need to know, okay, when Aaron Rodgers moves his, his arm this way, he wants me to go here. When he 
puts his head to this side, he wants me to go here. He's got an Aaron's got to know the quarterback has to know that the receiver's got three options off of his route. They've got to be in sync as to which option the receiver is going to choose every single time. On court chemistry, where does this guy like to get the ball? Does he shoot better from the corner? Does he shoot better at the top of the key? Can is he a guy who can catch the ball and traffic can go up? Does he need to catch it from more of a standstill position and create on his own? Does he catch the ball, shoot better off the bounce pass or off the chest pass? Does he need it on the right side of his body or the left side of his body, depending on the, the way that he gets his shot going? All those things, in addition to just generally building up a relationship with each other, that stuff's been a lot harder this year, and John Becker confirmed that. And at UVM, a huge part of their success. Now, I've lived here for four years, and UVM has won the America East Conference every year that I've been here, and they've been to the NCAA tournament two of the three years. And then last year, they probably would have gotten to the NCAA tournament if the championship game wasn't canceled because of COVID. Every year that I've been here, that they've been good, and that's all of them, they've had impeccable team chemistry. You can tell that guys live with each other. You can tell that guys like each other. Now it's easier, right, to show that when you're winning. I just told you Golden Tate's been a problem in large part because they're losing. If they were winning, he probably wouldn't be as big a problem. But Catamounts have won, and you can tell that things just come naturally for them when they play together on the court. Yes, they have great players, but they have great players and great coaches who genuinely like to be around each other and have worked hard to get to know each other both on and off the court. You've had really good leaders, Trey Bell Haynes, Kurt Steidel, Anthony Lamb. Now you have a new group of leaders, right? New group of seniors, Steph Smith, Burlington native uh, Ben Shungu, guys that are going to take on increased leadership roles. For the first time now, they have to be the front and center piece of the team. And that's different. And they have to rally around everybody or get everybody to rally around them. That's different. That wasn't always their job. And in addition to just bringing in naturally new freshmen like you do every year, you have guys that are going to be a huge part of this year's team that are transfers. Okay, Tomas Murphy, who comes in from Northeastern, big part of this team. Uh, Bernie Andre, who comes in from Northern Arizona, big part of this team. These guys don't have a period of years to get to know their teammates, right? They don't have a period of years to get acclimated. They have, like, limited amount of time to Justin Missoula, George Washington, limited amounts of time to get on the same page. And when you have a lot of that time stripped away from you because of coronavirus and the restrictions in place, that is tougher. And I appreciate John Becker's honesty in saying that because team chemistry is a big part of the UVM program. It's a big part of sports And this year, it has been drastically impacted by the coronavirus. My second takeaway from the John Becker interview, and if you want to get in, you can. i got a couple people getting in on Twitter, Travis, Eric, and some others. You can message me at WDEV Radio Brady if you want to get on in, at WDEV Radio Brady. We have a conference schedule. We have the announcement of some non-conference games. Things are moving in the right direction. I asked John Becker, did you ever feel nervous that we would actually get to this point? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I still think things are very fluid. I mean, um, you know, Corona is uh, the virus is really dictating um, what we're going to be able to do. Is- so he te- John Becker sounds nervous. 
He still sounds nervous, and that's really my, my, my number two takeaway from this. He still sounds nervous. When he tells you that I absolutely doubted that we'd get to this point, when he says the situation is still fluid, he knows that this could fall apart. Now, I don't think, there, I don't think we're going to see a situation where a season gets canceled. I just don't. We've learned too much about the virus. We've learned too much about how to, I hesitate to say live with the virus, but we've learned how to you know, about wearing masks and about social distancing and about the differences that that can make. So and there's too much money at stake. You might see some individual games canceled or some reschedules canceled or somebody might not be able to play at a certain amount of time because of the coronavirus, but I don't think the season's going to get canceled. But when he, he, you can tell in his voice and in his words, he is nervous. He knows that this is serious and it's not just a, oh yeah, we're practicing, we have a schedule, we're good to go like we've always been. He knows that's not the case. And he tells you that. And again, I appreciate the honesty that he tells you that. When he says the situation is still fluid, the virus is in charge here, and the virus is dictating what we can and can't do. He's nervous about it. And you can understand why, right? Like, of course, we see the numbers nationally. We see the numbers locally. The the highest number here in Vermont of cases since June, 35 cases today. We all see that. And he hears the, the, the Scott administration talk Tuesdays and Fridays on this station. And he hears them talk with a large degree of caution. But you're also think about what you're requiring. Think about what you're trusting here. Th- this whole situation requires a great deal of trust. It's requiring you to trust college kids and their discipline. It's not some, that's not something that people who are older, people who are parent age, like John Becker is, that's not something that they easily do. Trust college kids and trust their discipline. Think about your own life. If you have kids, you might trust your own kids. I bet John Becker trusts his players to do the right thing. Do you really trust the neighbor's kids? Do you trust you know, Joe from your office? Do you trust his kids? I, I don't think that most of you do. So I bet John Becker trusts his own team and trusts his own kids. But I don't know. I mean, you're asking, I mean, what here? We got how many teams in the America East? We're going to have, we got 10 teams in the America East as a whole. So he's asking nine other college programs filled with 15 other college athletes to do the right thing and to stay disciplined and their coaches and their communities because it's requiring you to trust those other communities because so much of this whole thing is that people are trying to keep the coronavirus out of communities at large, out of communities where there are older populations or more people at risk. You're trying to keep the virus out of your communities. And every time that a team gets on a bus and comes to Patrick Jim or vice versa, a new community is being introduced to Burlington or you know, was being introduced to another. You're requiring a whole lot of trust there. So I understand why John Becker is skeptical. And again, I appreciated his honesty. My last one, my last takeaway from the interview is on Anthony Lamb. We got the NBA draft coming in a couple of weeks and draft experts and pundits are really starting to kind of get after it now and think about players and who's rising and who's falling and who's going to go where and what each team needs. We all want Anthony Lamb to get drafted, right? Two-time America East player of the year, very good player. He's good enough to play professionally. I don't know whether he's good. You know, I'm not saying he's good enough to start in the NBA for the Warriors, but he's good enough to play professionally. Whether that professionally is in the NBA or in the G League or overseas, he's good enough to play. We want him to get drafted. 
But John Becker is right. If he doesn't get drafted, if he becomes an undrafted free agent, it might end up working out better for him. I think even if he ends up being a free agent signing in some ways, that's um, even better than getting drafted, even though we want to certainly get him drafted and be the first Vermont player to to, to to say that that they've been able to do that but um you know if he's a free agent signing he'll have him and his agent will have much more um control or have complete control about where he signs um and making sure it's a right fit as far as the, the style of play and he will have total control we want anthony lamb to get drafted selfishly i want anthony lamb to get drafted right i want for uem it's great for for us as fans to say, hey, we root for a team, root for a program that a guy got drafted from. That's great for us, selfishly. It's also great for us, selfishly, for the program, because now the program can put out flyers and can put out statements and can use it in recruiting, can have graphics, and Anthony Lamb can send a jersey that's signed and, and recruits for the future can come and see that forever, and it looks big time. It looks bigger time than UVM. Prob- you know, It looks bigger than most people have thought that UVM is. It's great if Anthony Lamb gets drafted. If he doesn't, though, that might end up being better for him. He can find, where, what am I looking for? Am I looking for just development? Do I just want to get better? Do I mind sitting on the bench for a bit if I just get better? Do I want to play for a certain coach or a certain type of coach? Do I want to go where I instantly have a chance to just play and, and get on the job training? What Am I looking for a place where I can play two minutes a night or 22 minutes a night some days? All of that becomes countless NFL undrafted free agents and like half the league in the NFL is undrafted free agents. A lot of them, I think prefer like rather than get drafted in the seventh round and be locked into low money to a low money slot with one team that may have no designs on using you in a certain way. A lot of them will say they prefer, Hey, undrafted free agent sign for as much money as I can. And I can go pick my place in some ways. That's better. It's like being college recruit. All over again. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Patriots and Jets getting ready for each other on Monday. We are going to have that game for you, everybody. So there will be no Brady Farkas Show on Monday night because Patriot pregame show coverage starts at 5.30. So 5.30 to 8.15 with the pregame show. Then we have the game itself and three hours of postgame. When you have the Patriots on your station, it is a full day affair, and I could not be more pumped about it because I love having those guys on the air, and Bob Sosi, Scott Zolak, and Sosi, who we have on every single Tuesday on this show. So they're going to be with us starting on Monday night. So we're getting ready for that game. So it's time for our second installment of the week of Know Your Enemy. It's time for Know Your Enemy. The Patriots need to get this pass game going, okay? Look, you can't go away from your strength. The Patriots' strength is running the football. But the Jets actually have a fairly decent run defense. For as bad as that, look, the Jets are 0-8. They're awful. So teams are up big, and they're sitting on the ball, and they're running the ball a lot. And the Jets actually are handling the run pretty well. So the Patriots do need to run the football because that's what they do best. But God, please, air it out a couple of times. Take a couple of chances. And that's on Cam as well as on McDaniels. It's on everybody. But this is the game to get going here, right? I mean, it's two of the worst. This is a matchup with some of the worst. Like, this is strength on strength, running the ball versus stopping the run, and weakness on weakness. Patriots can't pass. They're 29th in passing offense and 29th in points scored. And the Jets are, like, almost dead last in everything. The Jets are dead last in the NFL in 
in points allowed. They're dead last in, I think, passing yards allowed. Yards, I mean, they're all, okay. Last in points allowed, you get last in yards allowed, last in passing yards allowed, and last in amount of first downs allowed. The Jets do nothing well pass defense-wise. This is the chance for the Patriots to just try to get some momentum. And if they do, I'm not going to come in on Monday, well, I guess on Tuesday, and say that all of their woes are solved. It's just you did what you're supposed to do. And I'd like to see the Patriots do what everybody else in the league is doing. I'm interested in watching Sam Darnold in this game. We talked yesterday about the idea of moving off of quarterbacks and getting off of quarterbacks who were young. Darnold's not been very good. Okay, Three touchdowns, six picks, injured multiple times, had the freak mono thing last year. He's been sacked 21 times in six games. They're bad. He's been bad. Their coaching staff has been bad. And Sam Darnold, in this, you know, differently, but Cam Newton's fighting for his career. Sam Darnold's fighting to keep his job. And if he can't keep his job here, he might have to go the way of the backup also. So you could be looking at he's fighting for his career in a way, although it's not as urgent as it is for Cam Newton. So the Jets are bad. They do stop the, stop the run reasonably well. They can't stop the pass at all. And the Patriots need to try to exploit that. Take some shots. Play action, please. Flutie, and we'll do Daily Dose of Flutie after the commercial. Flutie's been saying, like, hard play action, hard play action, hard play action. Patriots used it on Sunday against Buffalo. They were 8 of 13 on play action. Almost 100 yards, like half their yards passing more so were from play action. This is the game for it. Take a shot. I know they don't have any burners, really. But you've got Isaiah Ford, who's not going to be able to play this week. But you've got uh, Jacoby Myers. You've got some running backs who can do some different things. I'd like to see Cam just throw one, someone, someone, like throw it deep over someone's head. Just show me that you can throw it far. Like that's what I want to see. Play action. Take a shot. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM, and WDEVRadio.com. Speaking of Doug Flutie, when we come back, we'll have our daily dose of Flutie. We'll all get a little bit smarter. That's coming up next, right here on WDEV. So Brady does a podcast with former Patriots quarterback Doug Flutie. Doug is a lot more famous than Brady. Flutie flushed, throws it down, caught by Boston College. I don't believe it. Doug is a lot smarter than Brady. So much in football is the guys surrounding you. Your success is dependent on the guys on the field and that team. So let's listen to Doug. It's your daily dose of Doug on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. A lot of people getting in today on Twitter, at WDEV Radio Brady. We had uh, Dean who messaged me and said he was listening to the show. We had Pat who messaged in and said he thinks that uh, Bloom doesn't want Alex Cora because Cora is a win-now manager and not a rebuild guy, and Bloom wants to rebuild. We got Danny and Travis and Eric and a lot of different people getting in, so keep those tweets on. Coming to welcome the interaction. So time for a daily dose of Doug Flutie, and Flutie and I do a podcast together, former Patriots quarterback. If you haven't heard it yet, we encourage you to listen to that as well. So it's called the Believe in Patriots podcast, B-L-E-A-V, Believe in Patriots, and we're everywhere you get your podcast and and. Flutie is just phenomenal, really. He has taught me a lot about football. And I think, based on what I'm hearing in the feedback on this segment, that a lot of other people are learning about football as well. I want to go to something really quick. 
we talked yesterday and we talked at length on Monday about why I had no problem with the Patriots trying the onside kick in the third quarter against Buffalo. And and Doug said he didn't have a problem with it either. So yesterday he said on this segment, whoever runs their trick play first wins. Listen to what he says about the onside kick play the Patriots ran. Like the level that football has gone to, the level that football goes to is pretty amazing to me. They obviously saw something during the week. It was a great recovery by, um, I don't even remember who recovered the ball, but so many times as a kicker approaches the ball, the front line starts to retreat and going for their area to get to their responsibility. Obviously, they saw on film these guys start backpedaling a little early. Let's take a shot at a surprise onside kick. That is amazing to me. And look, I've been watching football for 30 years, nearly 30 years, like 27 years. I've never once never once thought about a kick with that level of precision. So what Flutie is saying is that everybody's lined up for the kickoff, right? Well, invariably, the guys in the front are going to eventually drift back because they're going to go and block for the guy who receives. So what Flutie says is that the Patriots clearly noticed on film that the Bills blockers kind of get a head start on going backwards. They start drifting back before the ball is kicked, and the Patriots thought they can catch them literally leaning back or catch them on their heels. And I'm sure if you played football at a high level, these are things that you look for. But to the average fan, I had never heard that. And again, I've been watching football for nearly 30 years. And every sport has its own level of tacticality, right? Its own level of precision, its own level of minutia. That's one in football I never would have thought to look for. And who on film, I mean, whether it's a special teams coordinator or a kicker himself or somebody who notices that, and I'm sure it's not much. Like the the Bills players, I'm sure, are not just racing back before the ball is kicked because I think that would be a penalty. So it's just a little bit of a lean, a little bit of a slight lean that gives the Patriots a an inkling that they can try something different. It's really amazing. It's high-level stuff that Flutie teaches. And, and, you know, Doug has been doing broadcasting for a while. He's going to be in Notre Dame this week. He's going to be in South Bend doing Notre Dame football for NBC. And he just he, – he speaks about these complex intricacies in a really easy way to understand. And that's one of the reasons why I love working with him. That's why one of the reasons why I have – taught or or learned so much and he has taught me so much so very very interesting to hear the level of detail that goes into things like that and fans never pick up on it football really is so nuanced and so technical now one thing I'm mad at Flutie about is this because Flutie has taught me so much that he has taken away some of my irrational fandom so Sunday the Patriots have 12 seconds left in the half. They have a third down, and they're like, I don't know, 15-yard line or so. They have third down, 15-yard line. We're all like, take a shot to the end zone, right? They're down 7-3. to three. Take a shot to the end zone. Broadcasters are saying, hey, they can take one shot at the end zone. Kevin Hart, it was a Ian Eagle, Charles Davis. Hey, the Patriots got time for one play if it goes to the end zone. And the Patriots kicked. They kicked the field goal to make it 7-6. to six. And everybody's screaming. Patriots Twitter is screaming. 
I'm screaming, what the heck are they doing? Why are they not being more aggressive? Who does Belichick not trust Cam? Does Cam not trust his receivers? What's going on? And I'm getting into the fray. Flutie comes and talks with me two days later and says, Brady, they did the right thing. And I go, what the heck do you mean they did the right thing? They gave up a play. They had a chance for a touchdown. They took a field goal. Bad teams do that. Good teams take shots. Here's what Flutie said. The, the field goal at the end was because of out of timeouts. And you're probably not going to score a touchdown anyway from there. So instead of risking a play, a 10-second runoff on a penalty, uh, anything like that, the conservative move, kick the field goal, and I had no, I had no issue with that. I don't like it. Flutie makes too much sense there. That now I have to flip-flop my opinion. I was so angry. I was so frustrated on Sunday. I'm like, why is this team? Here's McDaniels again, doing nothing original, just taking the points. But then when Flutie comes on and he tells me, I think he's right. Or at least he's, he's right enough that I can't be mad anymore. Because when you put it in terms like that, it makes sense. There just might be more bad than good that can come out of that play or come out of you taking a shot. Everybody knows the ball has to go to the end zone. So if it doesn't, if they don't get it to the end zone, you get stopped short and now you're fighting the clock. It can get picked. You can turn it over. You can fumble. You can turn it over. You can get a a penalty that causes you to have a 10-second runoff, like he said, which really hurts you as well. And you're going to end up kicking anyways. The Pats are also, by the way, bad in those situations. They're 29th in passing, 29th in total points. No guarantee that they're just taking a shot to the end zone. It's going to get, you know, they're going to yield a positive result. And Brian Hoyer, not Cam, but Brian Hoyer butchered the timeout situation at the end of the first half against Kansas City to the point where they got no points. So we've seen this movie before where bad things happen. And I just, I don't know. I know that I can't be mad anymore because Flutie comes and tells you and tells me that it was the right move, and it was the right move to take the points. I I didn't agree with it at the time. I was livid at the time. But when he says that, you got to start thinking, okay, there's more bad than good. I got one more uh, from Flutie. Finally, this made me happy. I've been so upset with Josh McDaniels all year. I don't like that... I don't like that McDaniels hasn't been creative. I don't like that McDaniels, I don't feel, has put the team in the best situation to be successful. I don't like the use of personnel. He ran a play on Sunday against Buffalo that I felt was genius. Cam Newton is in the shotgun. He's got a running back next to him. I think it was Damian Harris. He fakes a toss to Harris. So Cam gets the ball. Harris goes right. Cam fakes the toss. The whole offensive line goes right like they're going to block for the toss. Cam then throws a slant to the other side of the field to a wide receiver, either Myers or Demir Bird. I'm not sure which one. It was like an 8-yard gain, a 10-yard gain, something like that. But it was finally creative. Get the offense going. Get the defense going one way. Get all the offensive players going right, and you throw it backside slant to the left where the receiver is now also coming towards the middle of the field. So the DB sees all the run action, right? He sees the running back and the fake toss. He sees the line shifting right. He sees everything moving right. The re- he's looking into the backfield. The receiver now is also going to- towards the middle. It kind of looks like he's going to block him, and boom, there's the ball on him for a pass. With that action yeah. of faking the pitch, 
Linebackers flowed. There was absolutely nothing left underneath the slant. So the slant's one-on-one. He comes under, bang, he hit the slant. It was an easy completion. And that's great. And important what Doug says, too. Everything underneath was removed from the equation because everybody, the linebackers, everybody else, they see the run action, so they're all looking that way. They're all thinking run. They're all flowing right. And so they're not there to cause interference, not literal, not pass interference, but not there to be in the way of the slant. That was a good play call. It was a smart play call, and it's something the Patriots need to do more of. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Internet, always a crazy place, even more crazy around election time. Let's get to crazy Twitter takes right here on WDEV. The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The yeah. internet. It's time for Crazy Twitter Takes on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEVAM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! Alright, this one comes from somebody on Twitter by the name of Boo Raids. Don't know who Boo Raids is, but their tweet came across my Twitter as well. Yes, the Red Sox should trade for and extend Francisco Lindor. That's what Boo Raids says. Yes, the Red Sox should trade for and extend Francisco Lindor. A little bit of context. Francisco Lindor plays for the Cleveland Indians. He's a superstar. He's 27 years old. He wants a $300 million deal plus. He does have one year left on his contract, so he, as of now, is scheduled to play for the Cleveland Indians. The Indians have told teams he's available. They do not want to pay him like the Red Sox didn't with Mookie Betts. They don't want to pay him that big money, so they're looking to trade him this year and get as much value as they can. The Red Sox, I'm sorry, Boo Raids, should not trade for Francisco Lindor. He's got one year left on his deal. They aren't one Francisco Lindor away from winning the World Series. So I don't need him just for the one-year rental. You said they should trade for him and extend him. They also really don't have a farm system to get to trade guys away from. They're bereft of talent. They're trying to build talent back up. Like They like Bobby Dahlbeck. They like Tanner Houck. They like Nick Pavetta. But they don't really have much to trade. Like Who do the Red Sox have that can be of great value for Lindor. Andrew Benintendi at this point doesn't have any value. He's a free agent in a couple of years also. They want a guy with five, six years. They want Dahlbeck plus, and the Red Sox don't have plus. So it doesn't even make sense there. I mean, their only chance really at a guy like Lindor is that just hope he hits free agency next year and they can go and sign him and hope that he's there and part of this rebuild and he's there for a long time and even if they endure a couple of losing seasons, that they're still able to get a lot out of him when they have a chance to get good. I mean, that's the if you want Lindor, that's the plan. Let him hit free agency, or hope he hits free agency, and then you go and sign him after the fact. That's really the only way it makes sense. The only thing they should be concerned at about this offseason is that one of their rivals jump in and trade for Lindor and extend him, and now you're going against him for eight, nine years. Like, you don't want to see, if you're high in bloom in the Red Sox, you don't want to see the Yankees trade for Francisco Lindor because the Yankees will extend him. And sure, maybe he'll break down at 36, but he's going to be really good for a couple of years here. He's going to be really good for a long time. I mean, if you paired Lindor with 
Glaber Torres in the infield. That would be a murderer's row infield in addition to, if they're ever healthy together, John Carlos Stanton, Aaron Judge, you know, Gary Sanchez if he's back, Luke Voigt. I mean, there's Clint Frazier. Like, there's real power there. And if Lindor is there, he brings a charisma, he brings a smile, he brings something that would be good for New York. He's a good base dealer. He gives them some speed. He hits for power. He plays gold glove caliber defense. He would be a star for the Yankees. And if you pair him with Torres, that would be a nightmare for the Red Sox. It would also be a nightmare if Lindor gets traded to Toronto and extended by Toronto. I don't know that Lindor wants to play in Toronto, but they got a lot of young studs there. Nate Pearson, the pitcher. Kevin Biggio. Dante Bichette Jr., Vlad Guerrero Jr. Biggio might be the the guy who has to get traded for Lindor, but if they have Bichette Guerrero and uh, Bichette Guerrero and Lindor in the infield, that becomes a young team that's going to be cresting earlier than anticipated. They already made the playoffs this year. I know it was weird, but they made the playoffs this year in the weird year. They get a whole lot better if they get Lindor, and if God, if they extended him. The Red Sox would be staring at fourth place in that division for a couple of years in a row. Yankees, Rays, Toronto, all would be better. They'd be battling with the Orioles for just to finish not in last place. So, boo raids. The Red Sox should not trade for Francisco Lindor. They're not one Lindor away from the World Series. As for extending him, if they traded for... They shouldn't trade for him at all because they don't have players to give up. They're trying to get talent, not get rid of talent. So... I can't extend him without trading for him. And I can't, don't have any players to trade for him, so it doesn't make sense right there on that basis alone. I'd rather let him hit free agency and then pay him in an offseason. That's what I'd rather do because the Red Sox have reset the luxury tax that they can afford to do that after next season if Lindor hits the market. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Who's saying what? That's coming up next right here on the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? The passing game was atrocious today. This passing game is in big-time trouble. They really said that? The Patriots, they're an average offense. If you cannot be explosive on offense, you cannot hang in the NFL. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com going up until seven o'clock who's saying what brandon marshall brandon marshall longtime nfl wide receiver had a thousand yards for multiple different teams jets uh denver played for the giants for a bit at the end tried to hook on with seattle at the end couldn't really do it but jets and denver he was very very good for very very productive for he is now a host of first things first on fox sports one and he's very good at it actually but he had a take on the Patriots, on Cam Newton, on Bill Belichick, I wholeheartedly disagree with. If I'm Cam Newton in that locker room, I am ticked off because I came for the Patriot way. You sold me on the Patriot way. You told me that I was going to come here and I could potentially win a Super Bowl. You told me that I could potentially get my career on track, and you gave me nothing. This is an excuse, Kevin. I completely disagree with what Brandon Marshall is saying. Think about what he just said. He said that if I'm Cam Newton, I'd be annoyed because I was promised a chance to win a Super Bowl. I was promised the Patriot way. I was sold on the idea of winning a Super Bowl. No, he wasn't. Think about this. Look at the situation at hand here. 
Brandon Marshall's a great player, very smart, good at this job. <clears throat> but let's be very careful about saying Cam was, quote, sold on this stuff. Cam wasn't sold that he was going to win a Super Bowl or be in contention from a Super Bowl. He was likely told, you have a chance to compete for the starting job. And that is what Cam Newton wanted. Cam saw an opportunity in New England to get back on the field early. He sees a young quarterback in Jared Stidham who he thinks he's better than. He sees an older quarterback in Brian Hoyer who he thinks he's better than. And he says, look, I can win this job early or certainly they'll falter and I'll get it soon. He sees an opportunity in New England and a quick path towards playing time. And that quick path towards playing time, in his mind, could turn into a good season for him, rebuilding his brand, rebuilding his career, getting him a a contract with more money. He signed a one-year, $1 million deal for one reason only. He thought he could play here. Nowhere in that is you can win a Super Bowl here. Now, Cam Newton might think, right, like he might think because – this is how elite athletes think, and athletes who have accomplished a lot think. He might think, if I get on the field and I play well, and I've got Bill Belichick, if I'm Cam well, Newton in that, and I've got the greatest head coach of all time in Bill Belichick, and I've got a, an experienced, longtime offensive coordinator in Josh McDaniels. If I play well, and you pair me with Belichick and McDaniels, and I have the number one defense in the league from a year ago, maybe we can get to a Super Bowl. I bet I could see Cam thinking that in his own mind. I guarantee you he was not told that. And then you see guys opt out because of coronavirus and all that. Now the defense isn't as good, and that's not Cam's fault. But when he comes here, he's coming here for one reason. He was coming here to play. Cam Newton could have signed a backup deal early in the offseason. Didn't want it. He could have waited and waited out an injury or a COVID situation. Didn't want to do that. It wasn't a guarantee, right? You didn't know that Dak Prescott was going to get hurt and be out the entire season. You didn't know that Gardner Minshew was going to get benched. You didn't know that Mitch Trubisky was going to get benched right away and that they were, you didn't know that stuff. The certainty was New England has a job in which I am being told I can compete for the starting job. Nowhere in that is I was promised this resource or that resource or I was promised a Super Bowl. Now, if Cam comes here and thinks, if I come here, play well. If I'm healthy, I will play well. And I've got Belichick. And I've got McDaniels. And I've got a good defense. And I play in a bad division. Then he puts together in his own mind the idea that they can play for a Super Bowl. 100% I can see that happening. Bill Belichick telling him, though, Bill Belichick wouldn't do that. He just says you have a chance to come in here and compete for the starting job. And I think that's all Cam Newton needed. He wanted to rebuild his image. His image as a player and his image as a guy who, you know, the thought about him that he wasn't healthy. He wanted to rebuild all of that. And New England offered him the best and the quickest opportunity to do all of that. This year is one big audition for Cam Newton. On the field and off the field and how as a leader, etc. And he's handled... 85% of it brilliantly. He has been unbelievable in a leadership role, in a mentoring role, in handling Belichick role, in not being selfish role. He just hasn't played all that great. But the only thing he was ever promised, the only thing he was ever given, was an opportunity. 
And that was the reason he came to New England. Not for the Patriot way and not for a promise of a Super Bowl. If he wanted a promise of a Super Bowl, he could have gone and been Russell Wilson's backup in Seattle. He could have gone and been Patrick Mahomes' backup for a million dollars. He could have you know, gone and tried to take over for Big Ben and go sit on the Steelers' sideline and see what happens to him because he's always injured. He was promised an opportunity in New England, and that is what mattered above anything else. He would love to play in a Super Bowl, but he wanted to be the reason that the team got there, and New England offered him a chance to do just that. All right, let's wrap it up here. Let's get to closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. All right, closing thoughts here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I want to wrap it up here with a local story and, and shouts out to Marshall Kramsky of NBC5 who put out this story. It's about a UVM soccer player on the women's side named Angie Salvi. So often in life when we are faced with adversity, there's a lot of people that just wilt or they don't know how to handle it, especially young people. I was guilty of it. You were probably guilty of it too. When something bad happens, you don't know how to overcome it. You don't have an idea. You don't have a fallback plan. Angie Salvi lost her season in UVM soccer this fall. They'll play in the spring, a reduced schedule, and she'll be a part of that. She has spent this fall coaching the JV girls soccer team at Burlington High School. And Marshall did a great story on her for the news last night. And she was talking, and her players were talking, and the varsity soccer coach was talking, and everything that was said by everybody was overwhelmingly positive. Here's Angie Salvi. I definitely never saw myself being a high school coach. You really can make such an impact on high school, young girls as a coach. Um, I still think of so many of my coaches from when I was there. First off, it's a great lesson in overcoming adversity, of taking an adverse situation and turning it into a positive. What she's doing is not easy. I've done it. Okay, I've been an 18-year-old coaching 14-year-olds. I've been a 22-year-old coaching 16-year-olds. I've been a 22-year-old coaching 21-year-olds. It's not easy to be a coach, one, when you've never coached, and two, to be a coach of kids that really aren't that much younger than you. It's commendable, it's honorable, and it's difficult. And she certainly deserves um, a lot of respect from people for doing this. Kids, when they're, when they're close to your age, they don't always see you as a coach. They don't always see you as an authority figure. They see you as their pal. And that can be a really difficult dynamic to navigate. And that can be really, really hard to overcome. But once you establish those boundaries, and once you um, get, it, get it through to the players that you are an authority figure, and that you are a coach, and you're not their buddy, it becomes really, really rewarding because what you do have still, you're not going to be their friend, but you are relatable. And the players told you how they felt about Angie Salvi. Here's a couple of players. Here's Lily Caputo, who's one of the players on the team at Burlington High School. He's just all around. Probably one of my favorite coaches I've had. One of my favorite coaches I've had. Here's Grace Park. Having a coach who's also a girl and is like playing for a team like you, she's like really relatable. Really relatable. When you can overcome that, that, okay, am I your coach or am I your friend? Once you get that established and you become relatable, 
That is the best feeling about being a young coach. The number one asset of being a young coach that you have is being relatable. It's not easy to get to that point, right? You have to establish that you're an authority figure first. But once you've done that and you become relatable, the players love you. If you show that you care about the sport and you care about their development and that you know what you're talking about and you have real tangible life experience to back it up, right? You just went through what they went through. In this case, Angie Salvi just recently within the last six, seven years played JV girl soccer. She knows what it's like. I coached college baseball. I was 24 coaching 21-year-olds. I coached college baseball. I was 22 coaching 21-year-olds. Those guys liked me not because I was their buddy. They liked me because I knew the sport and I knew what they were going through because I had just done it. And it's one of the most rewarding experiences of my athletic life was coaching for, I coached for like five years. I coached really bad teams. I coached really good teams. I coached kids that went on to be division one players. I coached kids that went on to get drafted. And I coached kids that never played another inning after they were done for my team. And it didn't matter because I still talk with my assistant coach all the time. I still have those memories of we won a state championship in New York at, you know, 16 year olds and under and those guys. And and that created memories for life for them, but also for me. And that's what Angie Salvi is seeing right now also. And you could tell that in the video, when I watched the video, that she genuinely enjoyed what she was doing. And it was genuinely a learning experience for her. And playing the game is unbelievable. I would give anything to go back and play another meaningful inning of baseball. But teaching the game to someone else and seeing them get it and then having them be or having you be someone that they confide in and that they look up to that's that's a pretty darn good quote consolation prize because when I coach kids that won a high school state championship after they were done with me, I was incredibly proud of them. When I coach kids that went on they went on to play in college and they would their parents would still talk to me about what's going on, that made me feel good that they trusted me enough still, a couple of years removed, to talk about what was going on in their kids' career and that, that they would call me themselves. And then you go and see a kid get drafted that you coached. And now you're following them throughout the minor leagues. That I don't know that that's really a consolation prize. So good to Angie Salvi for UVM for doing it. Good for Marshall at NBC5 for chronicling it. Good for the players for buying in. And uh, good for the varsity girls soccer coach there, uh, Jeff Hayes, who said he hopes to have her back next year. It's not easy to do what she's doing. You've never coached. It's COVID times. Coaching is difficult in general. And then you got to go and figure out how to navigate the turbulence of being close to the same age. She's done it, it sounds like. The players respect her. They like her. And when you hear she's one of my favorite coaches ever, that makes you feel pretty darn good. Brady Farkas Show brought to you, as always, by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of lifetime oil changes and state inspections. Preston's Kia is family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. I'll see you tomorrow. Dinner Jazz is next on WDEV.